Well, I commend all of you for making it out here on a rainy, windy, dreary day, especially after a painful Blackhawks loss. Wow, I commend you. Don't be afraid. They're going to win it. Am I right? Don't be afraid. (laughs) You are here. You are here on a day when you could be sleeping in, and I'm glad for that because God really wants to speak to us through his word uh, each week. So when you gather, when the church gathers, God meets with us in a special way. And, and here I believe that he's going to do some things that he hasn't done in the history of the world. We have great expectations for a holy God when the church gathers to do things in our midst. But we've got to bring him open ears, am I right? So we'll get into the word together in a moment. Um, but let me first begin by asking you a question. Do you guys play like board games as a family? How many of you guys play board games as a family when you have sometimes family time? So we do that in our home. And recently we picked up a game called The Game of Life. It's a classic life, but they like revamped it. They made it look really cool. So here's a picture of our family learning the game of life. Jared's really excited. Yeah. He, he liked the idea of being able to go to college and drive a car and uh, not so much having kids. The girls like the idea of having their family. And, you know, so the game of life is such that you race around the board and you pick a career and you earn money and, and hopefully leave everybody else behind. And then in the end, you live in the big mansion and you're the most successful person on the board. Uh, there was a problem, though, when we started playing the game because there weren't enough cars for everyone to have a car. So guess who didn't get a car? dad. So here's my piece. My piece was this little raft. (laughs) Little raft, and there's me and Lauren, and apparently we have one, two, three, four girls and a boy in our little raft there. And and as the game rolled on, I got a little nervous too, because in this next picture, this is Ellie's car, and she's with a boy, which is not allowed. (laughs) But in the end, it was all fun. Uh, And the game of life is a blast. Now, when I think of the game of life, I think of the men in this church, you, you know, you have a wife, you have a family, and you're trying to like steer your family safely through the perils of this world. You're just trying to get the car to where it's going, you know, without the flat tire, without rolling over in the ditch, and it's a hard thing. And the Bible gives us verses and passages that encourage and exhort men to lead their families well. In one sense, it gives us a self-checkup to see how it's going. But in another sense, it gives us encouragement to tell us to not give up. And um, we're in the middle of this this, um, four-part mini-series here on spiritual leadership. Uh, This is actually the last part of spiritual leadership. What we learned last week is spiritual leadership begins in the home. So where do leaders in the church come from? Where do elders and deacons and pastors and small group leaders and flock leaders, where do they come from? It starts when they lead in their home. When a man figures out how to be the spiritual leader with his wife and the spiritual leader with his kids, then that becomes the primary qualifier for him to lead in the church. And maybe you've been part of churches where there's been great leadership, strong, solid, godly, biblical leadership. Guess what? That started in the home. Maybe you've been a part of a church where the leadership was not what it should have been. Raise your hand. No, don't. (laughs) If there's a problem with leadership in the church, there's usually a problem with spiritual leadership first in the home. And as as God's Word teaches us how to find men who are ready to lead in the church, the Bible first shows us to look in the home. Last week, we talked uh, to the wives of deacons. 
And by extension, we learn that as godly women are supposed to reflect their husband's leadership in the home, as deacons and deacons' wives do that, so that's supposed to be the pattern for the church. And the number one indicator that a man can lead in the church is the spiritual wellness of his wife. The number two indicator that a man can lead in the church is the spiritual wellness of his kids. He's got kids. That's the proof. The number one red flag about a guy's leadership is if he's not leading properly in his home and his wife and his children are not growing to spiritual maturity or stability. Now here's the encouraging word. Men, you cannot manufacture spiritual maturity in your wife's heart or in the heart of your children alone. You can't do it. You can't manufacture spiritual maturity in your own heart alone. You need a savior and you need godly men around you to help you make it happen. So get ready for an encouraging message on how you can steer your family through all the perils of life with the help of the Lord Jesus and his church. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, thank you for addressing the men and thank you, Jesus, for giving us a gracious word, for giving us clarity on what you want men to become. Uh, We just ask that you would speak to us and strengthen us, giving us clarity and hope. And we ask that as you deliver that through your word, that the families in this church would be strengthened and built up by your spirit and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so check out 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. little review. This book is written to the church in Ephesus. They had all sorts of leadership problems. The wrong men were trying to become leaders. In some instances, the wrong men were already leaders. And the apostle Paul left Pastor Timothy to fix the mess. So he's going to town here, and he's got to appoint new leaders too. We're talking to deacons here. So in verse 8, we've already covered uh, verses 8, 9, 10, 11. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. This is the pattern of maturity for every man. High schoolers, listen up. This is the man God wants you to become. College students, hey, hear this. This is the man God wants you to become. All right? But in saying this is the standard for deacons, God is saying, look at them because I'm making you like them. Then it talks to the deacons' wives in verse 12. Let the, or verse uh, yeah, tw- uh, 11. It says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So you have a very quick, brief description of what a godly woman is like here in this passage. Not just wives of leaders, but the wives of leaders are to see this spiritual maturity in, uh, in their own heart, and then other women are to see that, and they're supposed to become like that. And now we arrive at verse 12. Last week we talked to the women, this week we talked to the men. It says in verse 12, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's it. A couple of verses this week. Begins by saying, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Deacons, husband, one wife. Spiritual leader in the church houses marriage. Spiritual leader in the church houses marriage. This continues the theme that started in verse 4 in talking about leaders where it says of an elder, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
Should he be a small group leader? Should he be a flock leader? Should he become a deacon? Should he be... How's his marriage? How's his marriage? Is he devoted, lovingly devoted to one woman? Now, this doesn't just mean that he has one wife. That is important. If you have two wives, you can't be a deacon in this church. It's more than that. It's not just like, all right, count up the number of wives you have and give me a number. One? Great, you're qualified. It means more than that. In the Greek, the the phrase actually literally reads, he's a one-woman man. So it's more than just he's got one woman. He is a one-woman man. He's faithfully, lovingly devoted to one woman. So you can write that down. How do I become a spiritual leader? How does our church find spiritual leaders? Well, be a one-woman man. This man is marked by purity. You see loving devotion to his wife. He's keeping his vows. Now, some read this and they interpret it to mean that um, this leader can only have been married once in his life. Like, period. Like, if he got divorced and remarried for any reason, or even if his, you know, Wife died, he got remarried. If he's had more than one wife, he's automatically disqualified because this reads one woman man. That's not what it means. There are cases where a man may have been married before um, and, and he's still qualified to be an elder, deacon, pastor in the church. It's a case-by-case basis. But if, for example, it was a biblical divorce or if he was not even a Christian yet, right, and he had not been born again and washed of all of his sin, um, then, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. But what we teach is, After the man becomes a Christian, he has a track record where he is a one-woman man. He has not gone through an unbiblical divorce that was his fault. He is devoted, faithfully keeping his vows to one woman. This is what it means to manage his own household well. And guys, we got to keep our priorities straight. If we don't keep our priorities straight, then the best things in our lives will be taken out from under us. And the world will not help us keep our priorities straight. In fact, the world will try and flip our priorities upside down. Uh, if, we, if we let that happen, pull the rug right out from under us and flip our whole world upside down. So we have to make sure we got it straight. When I was getting ready to plant this church and another pastor from Harvest World came in and he was training us as pastors to go out, he said, he was talking about marriage and he said, listen guys, if this church gets in the way of your marriage, it's all going to fall apart. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, no marriage, no ministry. Like a nail gun to the forehead. Bam! No marriage, no ministry. And the same is true of any man who wants to step up and lead in the church. No marriage, no ministry. Marriage falls apart, church leadership falls apart. You could be a doctor and have a terrible marriage. You could be a great doctor. You could be a great lawyer and have a terrible marriage. You could be a great nurse. You could be a great school teacher. You could be a great athlete and have a terrible marriage. You can't be a great leader in the church and have a marriage that's falling apart. It can't happen. It is the qualifier. So we have to get our priorities straight. And man, what are your priorities? If you had to list your top priorities, your top five priorities, what would they be? Number one is your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Nothing ever, ever cuts in line in front of what Christ demands of you in this world. Number two is your wife. She is the second most important person in this world to you. Number three is your kids. They're your responsibility. God gave them to you as a gift. Number four is everything else and everyone else. Anything that would try and cut in line in front of the kids or in front of your wife or in front of your Lord Jesus has to be put back in its rightful place. 
There are other priorities that are not to be neglected. Your church, your extended family, your friends. So you can't let, even these top priorities are never an excuse to neglect your other priorities. Right? You can't be like, well, I'm giving all my time to my kids so I can't come to church. No, that's not the way it works. But you have to keep your priorities balanced. This man who's qualified to lead in the church is a one-woman man. He's first becoming these things, these spiritual qualities in his home. He's first producing spiritual growth in his family. Then we know he's capable of coming to the household of God and producing spiritual maturity in the lives of others. But if he can't do it in his home, he won't be able to do it in his church. And guys, this is encouraging. Wherever you're starting right now, wherever you've been as a father, wherever you've been as a husband, Jesus can make you the man he designed you to be. You could spend three hours telling me about your childhood and your upbringing and your early time in marriage and where you're at now. You could tell me the whole story and I would say the same thing to you. Christ can make you the father he intended you to be. Christ can make you the husband he designed you to be. It can happen. It begins when you learn to be a one-woman man. It begins when you learn to be lovingly devoted to your wife, keeping your vows. When we ask ourselves, is this man qualified to lead? One of the first questions we say is, has he put a canyon of protection between himself and sexual temptation? Is this a man who has the fear of the Lord and he isn't going near anything that could jeopardize his marriage? The safe distance he puts between himself and anything that can can derail his marriage shows his maturity. Or is he a man who is playing with fire? See a man who is messing with the boundaries of how he interacts with other women. See a man who has not won the battle with purity. Where is he at with this? We ask ourselves that. Man, if you're going to be a one-woman man, that starts with your eyes. You're a man who looks at one woman. You're a man who looks at one woman. Being a one-woman man means you don't have eyes for all those other women. You're disciplining your eyes, whether you're at the beach or whether you're walking down the street, you are constantly disciplining your eyes to not be ravaging the women around you in your imagination. And certainly in your private time when you're all alone, you do not have eyes for other women. Men who are one-woman men are not spending their time with other women. They don't have one-on-one friendships with just friends who are attractive girls their own age. They're not ministering one-on-one to needy women, trying to be the hero in her life, a woman who's not his wife. A man who is a one-woman man has his eyes on one woman and spends his time with one woman. A one-woman man is devoting his mouth to one woman. He's not chatting with other women about private matters in his life. He's not texting about how his marriage is going to some other woman. He's not Facebook messaging to another woman about things going on in his private life. He's got a mouth that's telling everything in his heart to one woman. The one-woman man has ears for one woman. He's not listening to the private matters of another woman's heart who's not his wife. He's not saying, tell me more to a woman who's not his wife. He's not saying, tell me how your marriage is awful and how your husband sucks. He's not listening to that and sinning with his ears by hearing private matters from another woman's heart, a woman who's not his wife. 
Man, if you're going to be a one-woman man, it starts with your eyes, with your time, with your mouth, with your ears. That's how it's displayed. Too often I talk to men who are nursing these unhealthy relationships with other women, uh, or they haven't struck a a decisive blow in the battle for purity and left behind chronic porn usage. They're still playing with it. And these men are playing with fire. These men think that they've got this thing under control, or they, or they, they believe the lie that they can never live any other way. And these men are toying with the end of their own marriage, the destruction of their reputation. I saw a video recently of a man who lives dangerously. He's a bear trainer. In high school, did, the, did you fill out that test and then they told you what you should probably be when you grow up? How many of you took that test? Did anybody get bear trainer? Nobody got bear trainer? This guy must have. Check it out. This is what he does for a living. 71 years old. Getting up close and personal with a 1,300-pound grizzly bear is not for the faint-hearted. But for 71-year-old Doug Zeus, coming face-to-face with the fearsome predators is all in a day's work. Start off. Good. That's good. Ah. Good. Looking for a career? That's a 1,300-pound grizzly bear. Sometimes I'm talking to a guy. Thankfully, maybe he reached out for help. And, and I'm seeing the way he's relating to women who's not his wife. I'm like, dude, this is trouble. No, it's not. No, it really is. You shouldn't. No, it's, it's fine. That's him. Peril. And man, if your eyes, your time, your ears, your mouth are being given to another woman, that's you. Right now, you're playing games. And that sin, sexual sin, will rip your head off. You're not strong enough. It won't end well. The man who is a one-woman man can lead in the church. The man who's still playing games and not listening to the warnings, he can't lead in the church. What does it look like to be a healthy man in this area, one-woman man? Well, you look at him and his wife, and they're obviously into each other. They're obviously, visibly, blatantly into each other. They go on dates, they take vacations together, they spend time together, they show affection and love to each other. There's no guess. It's just, last week, somebody came up to me after the message, and they're like, well, what if I'm just not a physically affectionate person? I'm like, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to be like all over each other in public, like, hey, I love you, let's kiss. Who wants to be that couple, right? Let's hug and kiss all the time. I'm not saying be an obnoxious couple. That's your thing, fine. I'm saying however you express affection, do it. However you convey love, do it in a healthy way. But for the man who's going to be a leader in the church, there needs to be no question. This man also works on keeping the fire of intimacy hot in his home. Whatever that takes. The Bible's pro-sex. You can write that down. How do you know that? Well, the book of Genesis, he put two naked people in a garden and said, fill the earth. And there was no adoption yet, so how's that going to happen? The whole earth? All right. God created the flame of romantic love. He designed it. He wants it to be passionate. And the way... Men, the way that you fight off the battle for purity 
the temptation to look at other women or be with other women is you fight fire with fire. You keep the flame in your marriage strong and bright and burning. You keep that well. You, you nurture your wife. You help her to feel loved. She knows how you feel loved, and you keep that flame burning brightly. Then it's a lot easier to walk past the other temptations. But if it's, not, if it's not in a good place, and I'm just saying this as broadly as I can, if that part of your marriage is not in a good place, you need to prayerfully, directly, lovingly talk to your wife about how to get that to a good place. Because if you don't, you're going to be tempted to stray. The man who is a leader in the church, that area has to get to a good place. He, he knows that it's not just demanding, well, this needs to be better. But he maintains healthy boundaries with other women. He makes sure that he doesn't elicit jealousy or envy from his wife. He makes sure that he helps out around the house and keeps her tank full of love, right? This is the man who learns how to communicate effectively with his wife. He knows how to share his thoughts with her when. She knows how to get through to him. They're talking. And the husband and the wife that live separate lives, that guy can't lead. That guy can't lead in the church. There's a massive failure in his home that he needs to fix first. And Christ can fix it. There has to be health and wellness. Maybe in this area you're saying, well, we're kind of struggling. Our, you know, our marriage needs to get to a better place. You know what? You know what you need to do? You need to get with a man you trust and you need to tell him what's going on. If you just keep trying to do it all by yourself, if you isolate yourself and put on a good show, it won't get better. You've got to get with a man you trust, tell him where you're really at, and then you can take steps to move forward. I would just challenge you to do that this week. Whatever it takes. I meet with couples and counsel them all the time. And I say, hey, are you willing to do whatever it takes to save this marriage? If they both say yes, I tell them you're going to make it. It's just a matter of time. If one of them is iffy on that, I don't know. She's hurt me too bad. I can't. They're not going to make it. Man, the word that I would give you on this is resolve. Wherever your marriage is, wherever it's been, wherever it's going, you need to have resolve in your heart Till death do us part, I said it, I meant it. Say that to your wife. Say that to your wife. Till death do us part, I said it, I meant it. Say that. Make statements of resolve. You'll be a one-woman man. Now, it starts with the marriage, but then it moves on to the children. So number two, write this down. The leader in the church needs to disciple his children. It says in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children well. So the guy needs to know how to raise his kids right. Um, And guys, listen, we're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. It's the Great Commission. Uh, The Great Commission starts at the breakfast table. Before you go into the church and expect to be put in charge of some things, you've got to get those two or three or four sinful rugrats that wake up every morning to a good place spiritually, right? I'm a pastor, and yet God gave me three sinful kids. I'll ask him in heaven why, but there should be some sort of a pastor perk where you get at least one of them that's flawless, right? I love who my kids are becoming, but they came with sin built into the vehicle, right? Some of it's our fault, but they came knowing how to do it. You've got kids, you need to learn to raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We, we can fail in two ways, guys. We can, the pendulum can either swing and make us too passive or too harsh. Too passive or too harsh. So the passive dad isn't going to do it. Here's a picture of a passive guy. Just wants to live it up, 
take it easy, nobody bug me, gets home from work, puts his feet up, watches four different sports games, doesn't interact with his kids, doesn't help his wife, you know, bring me food, bring me a beer, I'm going to play video games all night long, you put the kids to bed, I'm going to sleep too late in the morning. This is the guy who really enjoyed junior high, and he wants to just live like that until he dies. He just wants to be a middle schooler. Another kid. This is not the man who's raising his kids up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He's passive. He's not engaged. He doesn't come to church. If he does, he doesn't like it. He doesn't talk about spiritual things in the home. He's just letting his kids do whatever they want, assuming maybe his wife's going to take care of it. That's the passive father, and we're going to be tempted to be that guy. After a long, hard week of work, we get home, we're going to be tempted to just be like, now it's me time. Everyone get out of my face. I'm just going to sit down and do nothing for three days straight. That's going to be a temptation. But the other side of the temptation is we could become too harsh, right? So we're patient, 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 and then the kids keep, you know, they're relentless, right? They know how to push your button, so then we just blow up. Now I'm going to fix some things. <sighs> and, and so here's the, the dad who blows up. This is a, who I will call the Hulk dad. This is the dad who waits too long and then his temper just blows up and he just finally is like, you know, smashing his wife and his children and his home and I'm going to get some respect around here. And, and guys, if you're honest, you've been both of these dads. You've been passive dad. You've been like, everyone just leave me alone. And you've been Hulk dad. You've been, I'm just going to fix some things right now. Uh, we, we're tempted to be both, right? Am I the only one? Leaving me up here? That's the temptation, too passive, too harsh. And while we will have our slip-ups, every father will have his slip-ups, we, we can't, we can't, our fathering can't be permeated by passivity. And our fathering can't be permeated by being harsh. That can't become who we are most of the time. The godly father is struggling to maintain the balance. And it could be in big things and little things. So, you know, as I think about our parenting right now, uh, you know, we're trying to, we tried to finish the school year strong. Very frustrating because the kids want to be done a month ago. So trying to get them to finish their homework and get everything done so that then they can enjoy summer. They're like, forget this. We're going outside. So they start forgetting things at school, and it was a huge frustration. So for Cassie in particular, my middle child, any middle children in the room? Listen up. Cassie, my middle child, she's forgetting stuff at school. She's not turning in reports. She's and we, two, three, four times we have this conversation. So finally I'm like, Cassie, you got two notes home from your teacher. You're choosing to learn the hard way. There's the easy way and there's the hard way. You're cho- Do you have these conversations with your kids? You're choosing the hard way. And she looks up at me and sighs and she goes, oh, Dad, I don't choose the hard way. It chooses me. <laughs> I want to go Hulk. I want to go sit on the beach, right? My son, Jared, you know, we're working with him on independence, and over the years, you've got to teach your kids everything, right? So at the time, we're, we're talking to him about tying his shoes. I'm like, tie your shoes. We're leaving. We're running out the door. Tie your shoes. And he's like, I could tie my shoes, Dad, but I want an expert to do it. <laughs> tie your shoes. We're leaving now. Little things, big things. They'll push your buttons, but you've got to disciple your kids. You've got to fight through it. Now, I, be careful here. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about being the fun dad, right? I'm not talking about your kids just like you. You want your kids to like you, go to 111th and Cicero 
every Friday, there's a store there called Popcorn Haven. They sell a $100 bag of rainbow popcorn. All right, you, I didn't buy it. I forgot to tell the first service people that. I bet they thought I did buy it. You, you just buy that, bring it home every Friday, your kids will love you. All right, but that's like superficial dad. That's like buy my kids toys and candy and then they'll love me. I mean do the hard work of discipling your kids. Do the hard work of training your kids up to be followers of Christ. What does that mean? Well, at Harvest, we define a disciple with three W's. The first one is worship Christ. Train your kids to worship Christ. It starts by just getting them here Sunday. If you have young kids, they're singing away in the kids' ministry. Just getting to church. 52 Sundays a year. If we're healthy and we're in town, we go to church. If you're here once a month, once every other month, you're not training your kids how to worship the Lord. But aside from that, get good, solid Christian worship pumping in your home all day long. There's awesome music out there. Harvest has a, uh, the main Harvest campus has a band called the Vertical Church Band. Buy all the CDs and play them constantly in your house. There's a band called Hillsong Kids. There's Passion is another Christian group um, that puts out kids' songs. And just get it going in your home and teach your kids how to sing to the Lord. Worship Christ. Teach your kids how to walk with Christ. To walk with Christ. If your kids are of grade school age, get them to come out to Awana. And then get their Awana book open once a week and work on their memory verses with them. All right? That's all it takes. If your kids are middle school, high school, get them here Sunday nights for student ministry. They worship Christ. Pastor Jeremy gives a Bible lesson. And then they challenge the kids in small groups to walk with Christ. Right? But you got to get them here. And then in your own home, just... Crack the book, open your Bible at the dinner table, lead family devotions. I wonder how many men here have never led a family devotion in their home yet. Why not make today the first day? You just open it up. There's different ways you can do it. You know, you could start in the book of Mark. And Mark is filled with quick stories of what Jesus did. Just pick one story of what he did or one thing he taught. Don't try and cover a whole chapter. Don't preach a 30-minute homily at the dinner table. I mean, just take one thing. Read it, explain it, ask the kids what they think about it, get the spiritual conversation rolling. That's all it takes. Worship Christ, walk with Christ, and then the third W is work for Christ. Get your kids working for Christ. There's, a, there's like an age limit on this. Like we don't have any infants working for Christ yet at Harvest Palace. So like when they hit middle school, then you got to get them working for, you go to your three-year-old, why aren't you working for Christ? Pastor Ryan said you're supposed to be with but, you know, you've got to set the example when your kids are young. Your kids have to see you working for Christ in the church, doing some things. What does daddy do at Christ? Is he an usher? Is he a greeter? Does he work in the parking lot? Does, what do they see? Are you a small group leader? Do they see you working for Christ? They should. And then once they hit middle school, we've got high schoolers, middle schoolers, college students serving all over the place in kids' ministry, in student ministry. They work in the tech team, on the band. They'll, they'll help out with the WANA games. Some of our high schoolers are starting evangelism clubs in their schools and, and getting three, four, five hundred kids coming out to evangelism rallies. They're working for Christ. So am I, am I helping my kids worship Christ, walk with Christ, work for Christ? That's gauging how well you're doing as a father. We also have four pillars, so a couple of them aren't covered here. Pray with your kids. Teach them to pray about what? Well, what are we praying about as a church? We're praying about Nepal. We're praying for our missionaries and pastors. Just, do you pray with your children each day? Do you pray with your... I don't mean for food. I don't mean, like, trust me. 
the prayer is not going to bless those chicken nuggets. It's impossible. <laughs> I mean prayer before bedtime, prayer before they go off to school. Do you pray with your kids? Do you pray with your wife? How does this apply to leader evaluation? Well, if we've got a guy we're you know, interviewing for deacon or elder or pastor or small group leader, you know, let's say, we're, are his kids healthy? Are they walking with the Lord? Okay, good. But what if there's a problem? Like, what if, what if one of his kids or several of his kids aren't walking with the Lord? What if they're grown up and moved out and they're not Christians? Like, how do we apply this standard to guys who we're interviewing for leadership? Well, it really isn't black and white. It's more of a gray area to try and figure out if this guy is, is managing his children well. But we have some questions we ask. Like, okay, if one of his kids or a few of his kids are not following Christ, is that a reflection of his parenting or is that a rejection of his parenting? Meaning, is this a guy who really hasn't put much effort into raising his kids and discipling them and he's like, I do whatever you want, I don't care. Like, is it a reflection of his parenting that they're not spiritually well? Or has he really worked and labored and set a great example and he's reaching out to his high school you know, son or daughter who's really started? Is he really going for it, but, but it's being rejected by his child? There's a difference. And if it's a rejection of his parenting, then we would say that guy's still qualified to serve and lead. We also ask ourselves, like, for example, in the case of, like, he's got grown children and, and maybe some of them are living, you know, really disgraceful lives to the Lord. And we'll say, okay, well, was he saved when he was raising them or was he unsaved? You know, because the Bible doesn't expect an unsaved man to raise his kids right, right? He can't do that. So maybe he got saved after his kids were gone and Sure, he'd love to go back and have another crack at that, but it's not fair for us to say, man, your kids aren't all saved. Oh, well, you can't leave. We can't do that because he wasn't even saved back then. So we'll also say, let's say, let's say you know, one of his kids is really in rebellion. We'll say, well, what's the severity of it? What's the proximity? Is it a grown child who doesn't even really live around here? Um, what responsibility has he taken for it? And what's the visibility? Like, is it going to hinder his witness? So these are all ways that we ask ourselves, how is this going to affect his leadership? But the truth is, guys, what we ask ourselves is, how are we doing as fathers? Are we really going out of our way to disciple our kids? And Jesus alone is going to make you a good father. All right? Wherever you're at as a father, Jesus will make you a good father if you trust him. I don't want you to idolize the leaders in our church and be like, oh man, well, he just was born to be a good dad. No. <laughs> One of our deacons, John Herzog, was raised Jewish. And um, when he, when he, you know, his kids are all grown up now, but when he had a six-year-old daughter, she came home from school one day and said, Dad, who's Jesus? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. He couldn't even answer the most basic spiritual question. Well, he went on to get saved. He went on to get baptized. You know, decades of good, solid spiritual growth. And he's now a deacon in our church. This is a guy who, when he had a six-year-old daughter, who asked him who Jesus is, he's like, I don't know. Future deacon! I don't know where your starting point is. Maybe you're there. Who's Jesus? I don't know. Maybe you're there. Christ can turn you into the father he wants you to be. He's done it in the lives of our leaders. So guys, be a one-woman man. Uh, disciple your children to worship, walk, work. And then the third one is this. Manage your household well. So it says, uh, be the husband of one wife, verse 12, managing their children, and then it inserts, and their own households well. What does that mean? Well, it's just a catch-all term for everything that goes on under his roof. 
the business of the home, his finances, could just be the upkeep, the stewardship. Uh, frequently, there would be extended family members living in the households in, the, in this day. There could also be some servants, like the home business is going on there. But the bottom line is, whatever's going on under his roof, top to bottom, should be managed well. This should be a guy who he has his life in order. You don't walk into his house and see signs of disarray or dysfunction or things swirling out of control or not properly managing, whatever. This is a guy who's got his household managed well. Um, this is a warning sign as we're figuring out, should this guy be a leader, small group, well, is his home in, in order? If not, the Bible's posting a warning sign here. Warning, he's going to bring that same uh, mentality to church. I love, I love crazy warning signs. I found this one recently. Next time you're on a boat, don't forget this warning. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I love it. Big old whale's going to knock you off your boat. Uh, and this is what the Bible does. The Bible gives you a warning. You put that guy in charge of something in the church, and this is what's going to happen to your church. He's going to knock people all over the water. We have to manage our households well, men. There's a danger when we see the man who neglects his home. He's just never home. Or doesn't stabilize his home. Things are just crazy out of control. Or he doesn't properly steward his finances and he's got tons of crippling debt. Or he's got a track record of rash life changes in his career or whatever. He just packs up and moves and runs from problems. Maybe a guy who doesn't finish things and leaves big things unfinished in life and doesn't follow through. Maybe it's a guy spiritually who never settles into a church and just bounces around and never takes it seriously. Who knows? Maybe he just has a crazy life and his life just doesn't allow for serious discipleship. Maybe casual discipleship, maybe spotty discipleship, but not serious growth spiritually. His worship is not where it is. His work is not where it is. His uh, walk is not where it is. And this guy shouldn't be leading in the church. Maybe there's even some glaring problems in his home that he isn't isn't going all at. He's not taking the steps to fix the glaring problems under his roof, right? So recently I had some tree branches that were scraping against my roof. So I went up there to try and fix what I thought was the problem. And I found a bigger problem. Check it out. This is what I found on my roof. The whole top of a roof vent was off. That's all open. That grate right there is open into the attic. So rainwater was gushing into the attic whenever it would rain because that top of the roof vent had blown off and I didn't even know it. So what do you think I did? You think I just went to the tree branches and I was like, do-do-do-do-do, problem solved. I'll leave that for another day. Or do you think I ran to Home Depot and tried to find whatever I could to cover that big old problem up? Of course I did. But there are some guys who have major glaring problems in their home and they're just leaving it exposed and they're not taking the drastic action necessary to stabilize things. There's a picture that went viral this last week. Somebody was sitting on an airplane. They looked out the window to see a person fixing the airplane. Imagine you're the person sitting on this airplane and you look out the window and you see this. You see it yet? You see the duct tape rolling down the side of the engine? There's the jet. Hmm, how should I fix this? This will do. Would you stay on that plane? But this is what a lot of guys do. And sometimes they'll come in, they'll say, well, something's not going. We'll say, listen, man, you've got to go all in to try and fix this. And then they just get out the duct tape. And they're like, that's fine. Going up in the sky. We've got to manage our households well. And we need to deal with major glaring problems when we find them. 
So there's a danger, guys, in our households that we're being negligent. We're letting things spiral out of control by our passivity. But at the same time, there's also the danger, again, that we're like ruling with an iron fist and micromanaging everything under our roof, telling the children everything they need to do, every way they need to do it, and you're just on them like a drill sergeant, you know, controlling your wife and her spending, and she doesn't get to spend a penny without you telling, scrutinizing everything, and you're just like clamping down right? Like a dictator. And then all the people around you are shoving down these emotions that will eventually blow up. So we can't be negligent, but we can't be overbearing. The guy who manages his household well is qualified to lead. Um, This is the man who helps to keep his home well-managed, functional, clean. He's responsible. Um, He demonstrates stability and devotion and maturity, as does his family. This is where Christ wants to take every man. This is where Christ can take every man. But it starts when you admit you need his help. It starts when you admit you need him. The Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Meaning you can't build up your own house to this level of maturity. You've got to fall on your face before Christ and beg for him to help you. You can't do it on your own. Guys who pretend that their household is all together and pretend that they're the perfect father and husband when Behind the scenes, something else is true. They're putting on a show. They're like, this is my household. It's like a mansion. Like, check this out. This is like a perfect, awesome, this is me. My family's perfect, and I'm perfect, and we're all perfect. And God looks down. You want to know what God sees? Here's what God sees. God sees that you're a fixer-upper. God sees that you're a man with flaws. God sees that your home is filled with sinful people. God sees that you need him to lay the foundation to help you build the life he has for you. Every man in this church is that. I'm that. And it's time to stop pretending that we're anything better than that. Be a one-woman man. Disciple your children. Manage your households well. And then there's a great outcome. Number four, write this down. Leaders serve well. Why? Because there's great things coming. If we do have these leaders who let in their home and now they're rising up in the church and leading, then they're going to have a great Uh, harvest of that. So it says in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's two things that come when our leaders serve well. First, you gain a good standing. You can write that down. You gain a good standing. There's a contrast here between the selfish, indulgent, false leaders who are putting themselves forward and their character doesn't line up with it. That's what's going on in Ephesus. They want to be all about them. And then there's these humble guys who lead their families well, who serve in the church, and guess what? Those guys are exalted. Those guys are honored. They have good standing. Humility is the pathway to greatness in the church. Serving is a pathway to great honor in the church. And it also says you'll gain great confidence. You can write that down. You'll gain a good standing and you'll gain great confidence. This could mean other people have confidence in you, but most likely it means you have confidence in God and you have confidence in what he's doing in your life, meaning your faith is stronger than ever because he's going to work as you lead. So the man who leads well sees that God is at work in his own heart. We learn here, men, that God's activity in your heart multiplies when you lead well. Leadership accelerates your own discipleship and adds to your faith. Some men think when they become leaders in the church, they have arrived. Behold my glory. I am a leader. 
I am done growing. Oh, no. You are about to accelerate your spiritual growth like never before. And you'll gain great confidence in the faith and a good standing. When it comes to men in our church, I really hope that you understand that God wants every man in this church to press on to become the man that he designed you to be as a husband and as a father. We as a church are here to cheer you on as that happens. So yesterday I was thinking about this because yesterday I've been telling you that I've been training for this half marathon. Pastor Mark helped me to you know, decide to do a first half marathon, which was crazy. It was yesterday. Well, on Wednesday my back went out. Have you had back problems before? Yeah. Back going out is a pain when it goes out a few days before you're about to run. Two hours straight, 13.1 miles for a half marathon. You're really nervous. So it went out Wednesday. I'm wearing two back braces, trying to rest it. But race day yesterday morning, I got to the starting line, and I was honestly like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I'm just like all, I had two extra strength Tylenol in me and another two in my pocket. And I thought I, I could start running and five steps in, I'll fall over and I'll have to end, you know. But I started running, and I'm like, all right, I think I'm okay, and all right, doing okay, and first half of the race, I'm feeling bad, but I'm making it, I'm making it. And then I, at about the halfway mark, I knew my pain pills were going to wear off, so I reached down. Well, my, my other Tylenol had fallen out of my pocket. So at about mile nine, my pain pills wear off, and I'm like, ow, 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 ow. And I'm in pain, and I'm like, any moment, my back is just going to, you know, just take me out of this race, but I keep running. And then they gave us a map, but the map was wrong for the race. So they showed that we had to run south on Lakeshore Drive and then back up and then go up to Navy Pier and then circle around. So as I'm running back, my mind is already fried, and I'm already like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And then I, I'm getting close to the city, and I'm like, man, I still got to get all the way up to Navy Pier and around. I've got like three miles left of this race. And I'm slowing down. My legs are aching. I'm like, I don't know if I can. Well, the map was wrong. And so out of nowhere, suddenly these people are, are cheering me on. They're like, the finish line is right up there. You're almost there. And I'm like, really? Can I hug you, perfect stranger? Because this is great news. Do you have any extra strength tile at all? Because I ran out on mile nine. And I'm really... So I turned the corner and the finish line was right there. I thought I had three more miles to go. But they're all cheering me on. And so I ran across the finish line and then someone gave me a medal. Do you want to see it? I must have done a good job because they handed me a medal at the end of this race. Check it out. Isn't this sweet? I guess, yeah. I guess if you come in 567th place, that's the magic number. (laughs) Maybe other people got medals. I don't know. I had sweat in my eyes. I couldn't see, but... You know, when I, when I think about our church, as I was rounding that corner yesterday and I just needed tons of help, right? I was like, this is what the church is supposed to be. Like, we've got a lot of guys out there running. And, um, and listen, guys, there's something in every man's life that's slowing him down. There's something in every man's life that's throwing him off, telling him to just stop, quit, go sit down, drop out. Like, every man is running with problems. But we're running together. And our church is supposed to come alongside you. And we're, we're not supposed to be like, you stink, bah, push you over and tell you how terrible you are. We're supposed to be like, come on, you're almost there. Let's go, right? Here's some Tylenol. It's going to be great. You're going to make it. We're supposed to like cheer you on to who you can become in Christ. That's God's intention for the church. This is God's intention for the man. 
I'd like to take a moment right now just to respond to what the Lord has said to us by praying for the men of this church. So men, why don't you stand up and let me pray for you right now as we close this out. Go ahead and stand up, men, and let's pray. Father, I just lift the men of this church up to you right now. And I wonder what it is right now, what it is that's going through the minds of these men, what it is that's draining them of energy, what it is that's making them feel like failures, what it is that's clouding their judgment. I just ask that they would lift that up to you right now. I just ask, Lord, that the men of this church would humble themselves before you, would cry out and confess their need would admit that they need to be fixed up, would admit that they can't do it alone. And then as they humble themselves before you, I pray that you would show you can strengthen their marriage, you could strengthen their family. Wherever they're at, wherever they're starting, pray that they would have hope that you will hear them. And however far they've come, I pray that they would not grow proud. They would understand that you're not done with them. It's just a question of what you're going to change in them next. And Lord, as men of this church, we invite you to work in our hearts and our marriages and in our families. Help us to run forward with perseverance the race that you have marked out for us. Forgive us for our failures, Lord. They are many. Teach us, Lord, maturity, discipline, and righteousness. We know this all comes by your Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.